Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's interesting as we read the Gospels how often Jesus finds himself at a meal. I, I mean, it, it, it's interesting and, and it's, it's obvious that our central actually act as the Christian church revolves around remembering a meal that Jesus had with his disciples. But if we read the Gospels, we see that, that Jesus does so much and teaches so much and, and has so much to give over meals. Right? It, it might be he's in the wilderness and people are there gathered around. There's 5,000 people and he says to his disciples, I want you to feed them. And he feeds them and they have a meal in the wilderness. Or, or it's when Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's walking with his disciples and they don't recognize him. And, and, and it's when he sits down with them and, and shares meal and breaks the bread and gives thanks that they see who he is and they rejoice that Christ is risen. Or it's various times where Jesus finds himself eating and drinking in the presence of, of whether it be uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law, kind of the religious leaders of his day. Or, or as we find in our text today, Jesus finds himself at the tables with sinners and tax collectors. It's interesting how much the subject of Jesus' dinner companions makes it into the hearts and the minds of those who are around him. Especially the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, it was different in those days because you were judged very highly by who you ate with, right? The, the people you ate with were, were considered people who shared like mind with you. The people who you ate with were those who shared like morals with you. And so if you ate with people who were quote unquote righteous, you were considered to be a righteous person. And if you ate with, you know, quote unquote sinners, you were considered to share their morals and their values. It sounds an awful lot like high school to me. Who you sit with determines what people think about you. I have to admit that in high school, I did not particularly enjoy choosing a seat at lunch. In fact, I still have trepidation when I enter into one of these atmospheres. If I'm the last one sitting down, I'm still nervous about who I sit with because it, it, it's all sorts of calculations in my head. Do I sit with someone I don't know so I can make a new friend? Or do I sit with someone I know because I'll be more comfortable and have conversation? I mean, it is an endless calculation. For those of you who are wondering, this is actually the decks at, um, at, at NNU. I saw you two looking going, that looks familiar. Right. <laughs> Just wanted to clear that up for anybody. <laughs> this is, the, this is the, uh, the meal plate. What's it called? Lunchroom? cafeteria. 
Right. It's the cafeteria at Northwest Nazarene University where I went to school. Uh, it wasn't the cafeteria when I was there, but it is now. Anyway, I still have fear and trepidation. Like, I'm 42 years old, and sometimes when I walk into a room where people are already sitting at tables, I get this tight feeling in my chest of going, where should I sit? It's interesting to me that Jesus never seemed to have that feeling. Like, I, I, I do these endless calculations in my head, especially if it's like an event where I'm the pastor, right? Even if, like, it's a potluck here, I'm calculating where to sit. I mean, you may not see this behind my eyes when I sit next to you at potluck, but I'm going, where should I sit? Who can I include? How can I, how can I be friendly if I don't sit there? Am I excluding these people? If, if somebody's new, should I sit with them? Or but they're sitting with people? I mean, it's like an endless calculation in my head, and it hurts my head and my heart. I wish I could be a person who just gets my meal and sits down. But that ain't me. Jesus, though, was interesting because Jesus didn't seem to care whatsoever where he sat or who he sat with. Like Jesus in high school is like, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I know everybody. And so he'll sit with this group or that group. And, and it doesn't matter because he doesn't care what people think about him. He doesn't care what people say about who he sits with or who he eats with. But in the first century, it mattered. It mattered a lot to a lot of people. And Jesus just sat wherever he wanted and welcomed whoever happened to come. We, we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago when we said that basically whatever table Jesus sits at, he becomes the host. And what's important about that is when you host somebody, the people you invite to your table is even more important than whose table you sit at. Jesus didn't mind playing host to Pharisees, to scribes, to people who were kind of religiously elite. But, but Jesus also didn't care about sitting down and hosting so-called tax collectors and sinners. In some places, Jesus is, is seen and looked at and, and it scandalizes the people who are watching because there's a prostitute at his table. But Jesus doesn't ever really seem to care who he eats with. But in our scripture today, Jesus is, 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 is described as welcoming tax collectors and sinners. It's interesting. I mean, I feel bad for tax collectors because they have their own like category. They're not just sinners. They're tax collectors with the sinners. But Jesus is sitting down and, and it says he welcomes them, which means he's not just like passing by or sitting by them in the public cafeteria. It's that Jesus is welcoming them into his presence and to his table, which is significant. Because again, you are who you eat with, as the saying might go. And so in Jesus' day, the scribes, oh gosh, Sometimes this is great, sometimes it doesn't work. The scribes and the Pharisees are, are watching Jesus and they're grumbling about, about who he's eating with. They're all bent out of shape. They're all grumpy because Jesus is eating with all the wrong people. Jesus is eating with tax collectors, with sinners, with prostitutes, with people who, who are bad characters, bad actors. Now, we don't know why the Pharisees care so much about who Jesus eats with. It might be because... The Pharisees have, on occasion, as we saw two weeks ago, sat with Jesus and invited him to their table. They didn't want to be associated with someone who associates with those people, you might say. It might be because they're genuinely concerned about Jesus' character and the influence he has. Now, we don't know for sure, but, but based on Jesus' sort of teaching and philosophy, he most resembles a Pharisee out of any group of that day. 
It's possible that they saw him as a great teacher, as one who could be great, but, but, but his greatness would certainly be sullied because he sits at the wrong tables. He eats with those people, those tax collectors and those sinners. There is a proverb in scriptures, bad character corrupts good morals, something to that effect. But bad company corrects, corrupts good character. Okay, I got the proverb wrong, but that's it. Bad company corrupts good character. Right, that's a proverb. It's a biblical proverb, as a matter of fact. And this is what the Pharisees saw when, when Jesus was eating with people who were sinners, who weren't considered of good character. Now, sinners is a great catch-all term for all those other people, but we have tax collectors as well. Tax collectors were not only people who collected taxes, which is a, you know, it's a bummer job anyway, but they were people who collected taxes for the Roman Empire, which means that they were traitors to their own people. Right, so they were especially bad because not only were they sinning, but they were sinning in connection with an occupying power. But Jesus didn't much care. He welcomed at his table. He invited them. He ate with them. He partied with them. He had a great old time. Jesus loved sitting down and eating with people. Jesus loved being with people. And Jesus didn't care what people he hung around with. He hung around Pharisees and he hung around tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus is aware of what people think about him. I don't think Jesus cared all that much what people thought about him, but he was aware of what they were thinking about him. And he was aware of what people were thinking about him because he often used these things as teachable moments for those around him. And so in this particular instance, he, he, he knows what the Pharisees are saying. He knows what the scribes are saying. And so he kind of turns to them and he says, let me give you a hypothetical situation. How many of you, if you were a shepherd, now just let's put this in aside in the first century, shepherds were not people who were good people. They were considered bad people. Um, I know it's strange because God has described a shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, but, but first century shepherds were kind of, out there people, and they weren't all that honest. Okay, let's just put that out there. So it's not as easy a, a, a metaphor as we think it might be. But anyway, let's just that aside, that knowing. Jesus says, how many of you, if you were a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep, how many of you, if you lost one of your sheep, would not leave 99 in the wilderness and go search after that lost sheep? How many of you wouldn't search over hill and over dale, right? Checking every crack and crevice, checking it behind every rock to find your lost sheep. It's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is that any one of those people would go searching after the lost sheep. Now we have lots of questions about this parable because Jesus says, leave them in the wilderness. Who do you leave them with? Do you leave them with alone? Do you leave them with a hired hand? What? You know, all these questions, but those aren't questions Jesus asked nor answers. He assumes that the people are going to say, we'll go search after our lost sheep. Sheep were valuable. They were assets. They were animals that you cared about. If you didn't care about the animal as an animal, you cared about your lost profits, your lost wages. It was something you would go search for. And so he says, how many of you would go search for it? And having found it, would you not rejoice? Throw a party and throw it on your shoulders, right? Carry it home and have a party for your friends. Again, the assumption is for Jesus, and the assumption would be in asking this question and giving this parable, 
that any of the people listening or hearing would probably say either that yes, that's the right answer, or yes, I would do that. If not yes, that's how I would act, then yes, that's actually the right answer. You search for the thing which is lost. When you find the thing which is lost, you throw a party. You rejoice. It's great news. You're excited. I have a story about something I lost once. I lost a blue shirt. Now, I don't know why I was so, like, in love with this shirt. It was a short sleeve, checkered, button-down shirt, and I just loved the thing. I loved it. It was my favorite shirt, and I would wear it over and over and over again. Um, And one day it was gone. I couldn't find it. I think a year went by where I would think, man, I wish I had my blue checkered shirt. I don't know why I was so, again, this is nonsensical, but I was connected to it. And every time I'd go into the closet, I'd look for it or I'd search the bottom of my drawers. It wasn't there. I didn't have that many clothes at that particular time. One day I was at a friend's house and he was wearing a blue checkered shirt exactly like the one that I had lost. I had not given up hope that I would find my blue checkered shirt. In fact, I remarked when I was there, because I'm naive and wouldn't ever think that a friend would steal my shirt from me, said, I used to have a shirt exactly like that. I loved it, and I desperately miss it. I was leaving that night, and his wife went, it's your shirt. I was so happy to have that shirt back. I can't even tell you. In fact, I'm pretty sure I had that shirt. So this was back when I was in seminary. Okay, I graduated seminary in 2005, so it was prior to that. I'm pretty sure I had that shirt at least until we moved here and maybe beyond. I finally had to get rid of that shirt because it was frayed along the neck and like the, the, the thing was separating. It was bad. I was so excited to have my shirt back, and that was a shirt. I've lost animals before. I mean, like not for a long time, but I remember one time our indoor cat got out and I was just devastated. Where is this thing? Right? And we searched and we searched and we searched. And the thing hadn't gone further than our front porch. It was just underneath it. But how excited I was when we got Hobbs, the mean cat, back. I was overjoyed. Because something that was lost was found. Right? It's just a natural human thing to do. When we lose something that's important to us, we want to find it. And we search until we find it. And when we find it, we are sometimes inordinately happy about finding that thing which has very little monetary value. But it's valuable to us. So Jesus says, wouldn't you do the same thing if you lost a sheep? But then Jesus raises the stakes a little bit. He said, what about a woman who has 10 10 drachma, 10 coins, 10 silver coins? A drachma, if you consult and look at scholars, is anywhere from a day's wage to a week's wage. Nobody's really sure, but it's somewhere in there. It's not a ton of money, but it's not an insignificant sum. He's saying, if a woman has 10 coins and finds that one is missing, doesn't she search for the thing which is lost? Doesn't she get out her broom and sweep the floor until she finds? Doesn't she take a lamp and light it and look all around every corner of her house until she finds what is lost? And when she finds that lost coin, does she not bring her friends together for drinks? Right? Doesn't she not throw a party? Does she not rejoice and say, I have lost something and now I have found it, so let's celebrate? Again, it's meant to be a rhetorical question, right? The answer to the question is meant to be obvious, at least in the way Jesus is telling it. 
Jesus uses these two very, very simple metaphors, but very relatable ones. If you lose one out of 10, wouldn't you search for that thing that is valuable until you find it? Now, I don't know if you lost one out of 10 silver coins, if any of you would throw a party when you found it, but you'd certainly be happy. We can see sort of the point that Jesus is beginning to drive home here. Jesus is attempting to tell those who are upset about who he is going after, about the people he's associating with, and saying, wait a minute. Aren't these exactly the people that God is searching for? Right, the thing that kind of sticks in our minds and bugs us a little bit about this particular parable is there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who finds repentance than the 99 righteous who have no need of it. Right, for those of us who are rule followers and a little bit self-righteous, I'm raising my hand there. Get a little miffed about that. Like, I never went anywhere. I never got lost. Of course, that statement in itself is pretty revealing. That I am pretty lost, aren't I? But it bugs us. It bugs us because like, God goes out of God's way to, to find people who are lost and sometimes who have lost themselves. But the point is pretty clear. Now, what I didn't go into was the rest of chapter 15, which is a pretty familiar uh, thing that you all have heard, a pretty familiar story, parable. You might have heard about the prodigal son. I don't know if that's something familiar to you. If it isn't, here's a little bit of a, little bit of a, a summary. The prodigal son goes something like this. A man has two sons. One day, one of the sons says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance so I can go and spend it? Long and short of it. The dad being the dad says, sure. Here you go. Divides his property, gives the man his inheritance. The man goes off and spends all his money. Wild living, it says. That's where we get the word prodigal, as a matter of fact. It means wild living. And then the man blows through the inheritance and finds, wait a minute, I'm broke. All those people who said they were my friends apparently just wanted me for my money. And here I am feeding pig slop to pigs. And man, it looks kind of good because I'm that hungry. So he says, I'm going to go home. And so he goes home, hoping that his father will take him back as a servant or a slave because certainly his father's slaves eat better than the pigs. He goes back, and what happens, right? As we know the story, the father comes running out, and he gives him a big hug, throws a robe on him, puts sandals on his feet, puts a ring on his finger, and then says, son, here's what you need to do. Here are the rules you need to follow. Here's the ways you need to shape up. Get your life in order. Be good. And, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about me trusting you again, right? Well, that sounds like something I would do. <laughs> shape up. And then we'll talk. But Jesus tells the story as the father just says, welcome in, let's have a party. And they have a party. Woohoo, right? That's about as party animal as I get. <laughs> no, they have a party. They, they, they get together and they celebrate and they, they, they eat the fatted calf and they, and they have drinks and, and they have dancing and they do all the things that you would do in the first century for a party and, and everyone's invited and yet there's one person who won't come, right? The older brother. The 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. And he's grumpy. He's grumpy because dad threw a party over a son who was not a good guy. He yells at his dad, dad, 
He told you he wished you were dead. He took your money and he wasted it on prostitutes. Now, I don't know if he actually did, but that's what the elder brother thought. And now you welcome him home as if nothing ever happened. He's grumpy. Because he can't see the rejoicing over this lost one who was found in isolation from his own worth. Somehow for him, that diminishes his worth. I am worthless. My righteousness is left because God welcomes home this guy. It's pretty obvious what Jesus wants the Pharisees and the scribes to hear out of these passages of Scripture. That God wants to see sinners come to repentance. And that God is willing to go to some pretty spectacular lengths to make that happen. And Jesus, I think, would go further in saying, and those people aren't going to find themselves. Right? That, that lost coin ain't going to find itself. Because guess what? Coins can't do anything. They can just be lost. Or spent. They can't walk home. They can't make themselves show up. And we might say that sheep could find their way home, but sheep are stupid. And it's common knowledge that if a sheep gets lost, separated from the rest of the flock, it gets in so much distress that it just sort of sits down and cannot find its way home. That's what I've read. That's what I've been told. I could be wrong. If you're a shepherd, let me know. If you know sheep, please, seriously, correct me. But everything I've read, that that sheep aren't terribly intelligent. They're pack animals. They're group animals. And so when they get separated, it becomes hard for them to find their way home. In fact, impossible. Which makes it necessary for the shepherd to go find them Again, it's pretty obvious the point that Jesus is trying to drive home here. Now, I don't know if Jesus is inviting the Pharisees and the scribes to take part in the search. That could certainly be there. At the very least, what Jesus is saying is, wait a minute. This good thing has happened. These people who need, who've been lost from God, who have been been separated from God, are being brought home. They're interested. They're, They're being found. The very least you can do is not be grumpy about it. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. I mean, like, you don't, maybe he's saying you don't necessarily need to help, but gee, don't be grumpy. In fact, I think what he's saying, at least if we read through the prodigal son, is guess what? God's throwing a party, and we're all invited. So we can stay on the outside and be grumpy because all the wrong people are being found. Or we can be excited because God has come to seek and to save. That, that we, we have relationship, or at least been offered relationship with a God who, who doesn't just say, okay, find your way home, I'll be waiting. But rather says, when you're lost, I will seek you until you are found. I will go over hill and over dale. I will seek through the wilderness. I will trudge through fire and through hell to find you. I will sweep the floor. I will light the lamp. I will check every corner and I will not rest until you are found valuable as you are to me. And when you are found and when you are brought home, guess what I'm going to do? Not more rules, at least not first. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to welcome you home with a party. To me, that seems pretty good news, especially when we get to the point we say, well, guess what? There are none righteous, no, not one. 
That's the paradox of these parables is, right? There's more rejoicing over the one who is found than the 99 who need no repentance. Do you know anybody who needs no repentance? It's not me. Because, quite frankly, I think where Jesus would want us to see ourselves, at least ultimately, is that we're just as lost. We're lost ones too. Now, some of us are lost and have been found, but we were just as lost without hope. We were just as helpless in the wilderness. And God came and found us. And for me, that's good news. And it doesn't matter how long I've been about this Christian thing. If I see that happening again, it should be cause for party, not grumbling. Seeing those who need God become reconciled with God should be about the most wonderful thing we can think of. The problem comes when when all the wrong people are being found. The problem for us, I think, comes when we see those who are coming home, who are sitting at the table with Jesus, and make in our own mind judgments about whether they're worthy or not to be there. I mean, surely I'm worthy. But XYZ person, well, their sin is too great, or their sin is just different enough for mine that I can condemn them without condemning myself. I think part of the point Jesus is trying to drive home is saying, who are all the people we don't think deserve to be at the table? And those are the very people who Jesus is inviting. Because, I think, and I deeply believe, that there is no wrong person who sits at the table of Jesus because they are sitting at the table of Jesus. And Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And what better place for a sinner like me to be than at the feet of Jesus and at his table? There's no better place for me to be. There's no better place for them, whoever they may be, to be than at the feet of Jesus. For Jesus has come, as he says elsewhere, to seek and to save the lost. And so whoever it is in your mind right now who you might be thinking aren't worthy at the table, and we all do it, right? I don't know that we need to be ashamed of it. I think we should be aware of it, though. Whoever it is that's in our minds that we don't think is worthy to sit at the feet of Jesus, to to dine with us at his table, I'm wondering if those are the very people that Jesus wants to say. My job is to seek and save the lost just like you. And I think the ultimate invitation here is not morose self-reflection. Self-reflection is good. We ought to reflect. We ought to think about ways we should adjust ourselves to the will and the way of Jesus. But ultimately, I think what Jesus wants us to get to is not just self-reflection, not just sitting quietly, navel-gazing, but rejoicing with him over the lost whom he has found. Over all them whom he has found, 
because I am one of them. And so are you. Because if you're sitting here today, there is ample evidence that Jesus is seeking you. If you're in this room today, like me, you once were lost. Perhaps you still are. I don't know. The good and great news is Jesus is seeking to bring you home. Just as Jesus has sought to bring me home. And in us, that should not engender grumpiness that Jesus is finding all the wrong people. But rejoicing for the lost who have become found. And even perhaps joining Jesus in seeking the lost in all the places that they may be found. And so today, I don't want to end solemnly. I want to end in celebration. I want to ask you to join me in celebrating the God who seeks and who saves the lost. I want you to join with me in celebrating that God is seeking, quote-unquote, them, whoever they are, and that at one point I was the them. That God has sought me and you and each of us and each person outside of the doors of this place. For God loves his sheep. And God is bringing them home. Jesus is bringing them home daily and invites us to celebrate with him. So I, for one, would like to celebrate today. I, for one, am going to ask the worship team. We planned this already. They're going to come up, and we're going to sing a song of celebration. But who God is and what Jesus has done, what God has done in Christ, that we have a hope, each one of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we have been lost, no matter where we are lost, that, that, that Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. And that means me and that means you. And, and he's bringing us home and we should celebrate that fact that I have been found and that he's finding others, no matter who they are, And no matter where they may be, would you rejoice with me today? Would you stand with me and celebrate today as we sing?